been thinking about this lately. This is what I suppose. Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, South London. You can visit us at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org. First of all, I have an apology that I'd like to make um, to really to all Pentecostal and charismatic Christians. I think last week it was apparent that I was quite curt and flippant. I oversimplified Pentecostal and charismatic perspectives and I caused unnecessary offense. I did that publicly and I'd like to apologize publicly. For those that, that don't know, um, Pentecostalism is a relatively modern branch of Christianity. It's probably about 100 years old. Oh, one minute. There we go. As I said, Pentecostalism is a relatively modern branch of Christianity, about 100 years old. And in this slide, I picked this one particularly because when you talk about Pentecostal churches, most of the time people tend to think black church, right? I don't know if you'd agree with me. Um, but I picked this picture. It was taken in 1946. And you can see there's not a black face among them. And basically the Pentecostal movement, it grew out of the holiness movement, which in turn had its roots in Methodism. Now at Calvary Chapel, South London, just for the record, I'd like to say that we believe that the gifts of the Spirit are for today. I think one of the things that I was potentially accused of is that I didn't believe in the gifts of the Spirit, which obviously if you've been around for five minutes, you know that's not true. Um, but we believe here in the gifts of the Spirit and that therefore today, as outlined in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, practice biblically. Pastor Ephraim spent nearly a year in these three chapters, and if you desire a more, a more extensive exposition on the topic, um, CDs are available as a series on spirituality and will also be available online, hopefully in the next few months. So we are Pentecostal in one sense, yet there are major Pentecostal denominations that we wouldn't agree with doctrinally. Someone sent me a text in the week, I'm sorry I didn't get back to you, um, but this really is a, an extended text message in response to the question, are we Pentecostals, or what is Pentecostalism? Um, so we are Pentecostal in one sense, and I reiterate, yet there are major Pentecostal denominations that we wouldn't agree with doctrinally, such as Oneness Pentecostals, also known as Jesus Only, or Apostolic Pentecostals. It's a bit of a quagmire, it's a bit of a minefield understanding all the different um, groups. There are over 177 Pentecostal denominations, let alone the other strands of Christianity. So one strand that we wouldn't agree with is the oneness Pentecostals. They believe that in the early church, baptism was done in the name of Jesus Christ only, not in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in time, this group abandoned the traditional expression of belief in the Trinity 
and accept the oneness of God. So they don't believe that Jesus is separate and distinct from the Father and is separate and distinct from the Spirit. They believe that he's all the same person playing different roles. A crisis developed within the Assemblies of God, AOG, in 1916 over these new beliefs. The AOG decided to remain Trinitarian, but in its baptismal formula and its concept of, of the deity, but almost 200 pastors left the Assemblies of God as a result. The United Pentecostal Church and the Pentecostal Assemblies of the World are the main oneness Pentecostal denominations with whom we would not agree. Believe that Jesus is separate from the Father and separate from the Spirit. This perspective would also make us charismatic in a sense, which is a movement that started in the 1960s approximately. Um, but although we may be charismatic in a sense, because we believe in, again, the gifts, bear in mind that there are also charismatic Roman Catholics whom we obviously would not agree with. We are charismatic, um, which is just another term for new Pentecostals or neo-Pentecostalism. In one sense we are this, but there are many charismatic churches and denominations that we wouldn't agree with. We do see ourselves as distinct from those who preach an unbalanced prosperity gospel and distance ourselves from movements that display over-emotional tendencies such as the Toronto Blessing, quote-unquote, the Brownsville Revival and Todd Bentley and so on. Though convinced believers in the modern practice of all of the gifts of the Spirit, we attempt to keep the primary focus on the person of Christ, the cross of Christ, the gospel of Christ, through expositional teaching and godly living. So that was just a short apology, again, for being a bit flippant last week, talking about Pentecostals and Charismatics. Okay. Here we are today, looking again at the book of Acts, the history of the early church, and we're going to be looking at Chapter 2, verse 5 through to verse 21. Last week, we talked about the unity of the Spirit. We saw three things. One, a sound. Two, a sight. And three, a, a, a set of strange speech. A sound like a rushing mighty gale force wind. A sight, tongues, literally, Flames of, of, of uninflammable fire, I should say. A bit like the British gas sign. Tongues of fire that didn't actually consume or burn. And strange speech. Strange languages that had never been learned by the speakers as a result of them all being filled with the Holy Spirit. This was a phenomenon that was new and unusual. Yet as much as it involved the apostles, it wasn't strictly res restricted only to them. There was obviously the, the other 108 disciples who were also present and filled with the Spirit. We have Paul the Apostle who wasn't even a believer at this point, Acts 2 at Pentecost, who we hear later make reference to the fact that he spoke with tongues and there was an expectation that others in churches that were planted by him would have members who would also speak with tongues or in other languages. 
Languages that were not common to them, but given to them by the Holy Spirit. But Paul also says, do all speak with tongues? The honest answer to that would be no. At least in the 21st century, that is. Not every Christian speaks in tongues. In the same way that not every Christian prophesies. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27 says, Now you are the body of Christ, the members individually. And God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, varieties of tongues, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, are all workers of miracles. The, the honest answer would be, of course not. Do all have gifts of healings? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But he says, but earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet I show you, as he goes into 1 Corinthians 13, a more excellent way. I cannot with all good conscience agree that those who... Let me say it like this. I cannot with all good conscience agree with those who relegate the gifts of the Spirit to the past. I can't. Although there are many great men who I admire, and I suspect you do, that would do so, that would relegate the gifts of the Spirit as a thing of the past. At this point, I cannot. I believe that the gifts of the Spirit are vital to the mission of the Church of Jesus Christ. Again, the only issue that I or we here at South London have is the correct use of the gifts. Okay, we're in verse 5 of Acts chapter 2. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. These who were now living in Jerusalem who were Jews. They were born elsewhere in the world, but were now back living in their native Israel. And these were committed, pious, godly men, or at least the majority of them were, literally men of cautious and circumspect lives who lived in a prudent manner. The term is applied to men who were cautious about offending God, who were careful to observe his commandments, Devout Jews who had come up to the great feast of Pentecost. We will see some who were a part of this group, who were outwardly godly, yet inwardly were superficially really religious. As I mentioned, from every nation under heaven. In a more true sense, they were from all over. Obviously, they weren't literally from every single place. It's a general expression meaning from all parts of the earth. Now, we're going to come back to this in verse 11. Verse 6. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Now, some suggest that this place where they were meeting was either a room adjacent to the temple, or at least in very close proximity to the temple. Either the noisy, winding, 
windy gale force sound was heard beyond and outside the four walls of this room, which is what the people heard. And they're like, what's going on? Either that's the sound that they heard, or bystanders were close enough to hear the voices of the disciples speaking in different languages. What's going on in there? Can you hear? Whatever the reason, a throng or a crowd had gathered, and they were now beholding the disciples speaking out in languages that were common to these astounded listeners. Verse 7, Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? Come from northern Israel. And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Now, imagine, which will not be hard for some, that you are a Nigerian, right? Both of your parents are from Lagos. But you were born in the UK and you speak English, but you also speak Yoruba. And then here you are confronted with a Mancunian, as someone from Manchester up north. And he's from up north, and he talks like that. Oh, that's a Cornish accent, isn't it? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> but however they talk from up north, right, you can identify them by their accent. A lie? Huh. <laughs> Sometimes. Imagine someone like that coming up to you, right? And you know that's how they speak, that's how they talk. Yet they come up to you and they start speaking to you in your local Yoruba dialect. Now you know Stephen Gerrard, right? You know how he talks, right? Big up all the Liverpool man, them. Or one of them, Tim. <laughs> You know how Stephen Gerrard talks. Now, imagine him coming up to you. How realistic is this? And, he's, and he starts speaking in your Yoruba dialect. It's like a Scotsman in a kilt coming up to you and saying, Kilon Shelley. <laughs> and he says it, not like I did, but with perfect West African diction. You'd be like, Stephen Gerrard, speaking Yoruba. Well, you would be like these Jews in verse 6 and verse 12. You would be amazed, perplexed, confounded, and confused. In some way, the onlookers were able to distinguish these as Galileans. We don't know how they knew that they were Galileans. Maybe it was because of their dress. We're not sure. The text doesn't say. And it'd be like me going to Madras, which is where my wife's dad is from, and hearing an Indian looking at him and identifying him as a Hindu or a Sikh who never ever learned to speak English turn around and ask me, here yeah, mate, <laughs> want to go down the road and get some grub? What do you want? Bag of chips and a sausage in batter with loads of salt and vinegar and then have a glass of water. Not just speaking English, 
but speaking English with a South London accent. This could be described <laughs> as unusual. And this group, they could be speaking out all together while looking up into the sky, or disciples speaking, just standing up and speaking in their own native language in regards to where these Jews were born, because they were born outside of Israel and had come back to Israel, right? Look at the different places that they all came from. This is a map of the world, and I'm not sure if you can see it clearly, but in the center is highlighted the Near and the Middle East, right? Near East is, is where Israel is typically. And verse 9 says, look at the different places where they came from. Parthians and Medes and Elamites. Those dwelling in Mesopotamia. Now, that's ancient for Iraq, for Iran, and Syria. Then he goes on to talk about Individuals from other places, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus, and you ever read these in the Bible and try to figure where, where on earth are these places? Because many of them are not called by these names, you know what I'm saying? Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, now that's from Israel, Judea is right, Israel, right, southern, southern Israel. Judea, up through Samaria, up to northern Israel, which is Galilee, where the disciples them are from. Right up, to, uh, right up through Lebanon. Oh, I was looking for Farida. Right up for, through Lebanon, um, up towards Turkey, which is Asia Minor. You, you read Asia Minor in, in the New Testament, and it's really just talking, to, talking about Turkey. Verse 10, Phrygia and Pamphylia, where are these places? Okay. They're in western Turkey. I'll tell you why they're multicolored in a minute. Egypt and the parts of, of, of Libya adjoining Cyrene. Now, this is down south. Visitors from Rome, that's an easy one, right? There we go. Beyond Greece, heading towards Italy, evidently, both Jews and proselytes, those are Gentile converts to Judaism, Cretans, that's right there in Crete, you can't see it that clearly, but it's in the middle of the Mediterranean, Crete, Cretans, and Arabs. Where's that one? Oh, it's labeled, right, so you know where it is. There we go. The coming of the Spirit symbolized a new unity transcending all racial, all national, and linguistic barriers. So Luke is at pains to emphasize the cosmopolitan character of the crowd. And he does so by the expression, every nation under heaven. Now, I said I'll come back to this. Although all the nations of the world were not present literally, they were representatively. 
Luke cleverly gives us a list of what is known as the table of nations, as given in Genesis chapter 10. Over in the top left-hand corner, you might see a, a green dot. The green dots on the map represent the descendants of Japheth. Genesis chapter 10, verse 2 through 5. The blue dots represent the descendants of Ham. Genesis chapter 10, verse 6 through 20. And the red dots are the descendants of Shem. Genesis chapter 10, verse 21 through to 31. Nothing could have demonstrated God's desire to bring about an expression that was cosmopolitan in its character. Nothing could have demonstrated this more clearly. The multiracial, multinational, multilingual nature of the kingdom of Christ. Ain't that beautiful? Henry Martin said, the spirit of Christ is the spirit of missions. And the nearer we get to him, the more intensely missional we become. It's interesting on the back of Mark's presentation on missions, wherever it might be. If, you, if you're intending to come to the, the missions prayer meeting, whether you're going on a missions trip or you just want to pray for the mission, that's a good thing. You're missional-minded. Now, this is beautiful and stands in stark contradiction to Babel, as I mentioned last week, where human languages were confused and nations scattered, right? In Jerusalem, on this, the day of Pentecost, the language barrier was supernaturally overcome as a sign that the nations would now be gathered, not scattered, gathered together in Christ, prefiguring the, the great day when the redeemed company will be drawn from every nation, from every tribe, from every tongue, people, and language. Verse 11b, that's the second portion of verse 11. We hear them speaking in our own tongues, they say. What? The wonderful works of God. Again, as Pastor Ephraim shared in a series on spirituality, we get the direct impression that those who spoke in other tongues or languages did two things. They, they speak languages that are known. They speak languages that are known, as opposed to unknown, unidentifiable languages. They're speaking Italian and Greek and Arabic, etc., and Jesus had predicted that this would happen in Mark chapter 16, verse 17, with regard to those who believe on him. The word unknown in 1 Corinthians 14, most of you probably are aware, is in italics. It's kind of like lean over to one side. And it was, this indicates that these words are added by the translator. So for years and years and years, particularly those who read the King James authorized version of the Bible were given the impression that these languages or tongues, or should I say these tongues, these languages are unknown. 
that was added by the translator. And again, as I said last week, it's one of those things that contributes to not helping. It's not present in the original text. That's the first thing they spoke. Languages that were known. And secondly, they were not communicating a message directed to men. I.e., like we may be familiar with, thus says the Lord. They communicated a message directed to God, not to men. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 2 says, For he who speaks in a tongue or a language does not speak to men, but to God. And three examples of that are Psalm 71, verse 19, says also, and this is an example of someone doing not necessarily speaking in another language, obviously they were speaking a language, but speaking directly to God. Also, your righteousness, O God, is very high. You who have done great things. O God, who is like you? See, speaking to God about the wonderful things that he's done. Psalm 66 verse 3, say to who? Say to God, how awesome are your works. Through the greatness of your power, your enemies shall submit themselves to you. Turn to Exodus chapter 15 and we'll look at the song of Moses. Like I said, I'm not putting everything up on the chart. Need to open your Bible. Amen. Exodus chapter 15, starting at verse 1. Then Moses and the children of Israel, check it. Have you got in your Bible just as a subheading, the song of Moses? That's not in the text, right? But kind of draws your attention to, to some degree to what's happening. It says, then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to who? To the Lord. And spoke saying, I will sing to the Lord. For he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. This is a song, you know. These are lyrics. Lyrics. The Lord is my strength, verse 2, and song. And he has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots, listen to the wonderful works that he's done. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea. His chosen captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in in power. That's a cold word for the the spirit. I ain't got time to go into that. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces. And in the greatness of your excellence, you have overthrown those who rose against you. You sent forth your wrath, it consumed them like stubble. And with a blast of your nostrils, the waters were gathered together. This is the parting of the Red Sea. The flood stood upright like a heap. The depths congealed in the heart of the sea. Listen to the wonderful works of God. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. Hear the the voice of the enemy? 
My desire shall be satisfied on them. I will draw my sword and my hand shall destroy them. But you know what? The <laughs> Lord, you, you blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you? Oh, that reminds me of a song that I've heard. Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Shailin and Timothy Brindle. Oh, my goodness. Da, 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 da. Shit, that tune. Wow. The glorious majesty of the God who reigns. See, this is a song. Now, check it. You told me that that song ain't informative. It's beneficial to the hearer. But it's not directed to the hearer directly. It's directly directed to who? To God. See, they don't speak in tongues and then say, Thus says the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord. This is what I say to you, my child. This is not, what's, that's, this is not what is going on. They are, we know that because they're talking to the Lord. So you're not going to say to the Lord, Thus says the, thus says the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord. I will bring a great revival throughout this land. No. We do believe the gift of tongues is for today, but it needs to be practiced properly. Again, I point you to the extensive teaching series on spirituality by Pastor Ephraim last year. I mean, it was like he took a year to go through those three chapters. So it would be redundant for me to do so again now. Now, most commentators agree that the wonderful works mentioned here relates to the wonderful works of God as they relate to Christ. The wonderful works of God as they relate to Christ. Peter will go on in a moment to elaborate on this very topic, which we will look at next week. Verse 12, so they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others mockingly said, they're full of new wine. Now, this is an unprecedented event. What on earth does it mean? Said some. Others ridiculed and said, these men are drunk. A similar incident took place, if you remember, in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Do you remember with Hannah? Sorry, the text is a bit small, but you might have to put in your glasses for this one. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 9. So Hannah arose after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord. And she, that is Hannah, was in bitterness of soul and prayed, who to? To the Lord and wept in anguish. Then she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on that affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall come upon his head. And it happened, as she continued praying before the Lord, that Eli watched her mouth. Now, Hannah spoke in her heart. Only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore, 
Eli, who was, was a bit of a backslidden leader, Eli thought she was drunk. So Eli said to her, how long will you be drunk? Put your wine away from you. And Hannah answered and said, no, my Lord, I'm a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink, drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant a wicked woman, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief, I have spoken until now. Then Eli answered and said, okay, go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition, which you have asked of him. He should have said sorry first, but maybe he did, I don't know. It's not recorded. But she wasn't drunk. She was praying, talking to God. She wasn't filled with wine, but filled with grief. In similar fashion, these men were not drunken or inebriated or filled with wine, but they were filled with joy, being filled with the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 18 says, And do not be drunk with wine and be overcome by it, but be filled with the Spirit and controlled, if you like, by the Spirit. See, people get drunk with, with drink and the liquor begins to take control of them. He's saying, look, don't let that happen to you, but rather get filled with the Spirit to the point where he begins to take control of you. And he never does so in a way that takes away your self-control. The spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. Or the Holy Spirit ain't going to take hold of you like, well, I'm going to take your body and I'm going to use it any way I like without your permission. No. It's in conjunction with our agreeing with his working in our lives that we then respond or allow him to drive, if you like, the car. Control it in terms of the direction that it goes in, how fast it goes, how slow it goes. The result of being filled with the Spirit should never lead to us being drunk and out of control. On the contrary, being filled with the Spirit is the antithesis. It's self-controlled, right? That's one of the fruit of the Spirit. Some advocate that we become so overwhelmed with the Spirit that we lose control and let ourselves go. Get drunk in the spirit even. Which is not really a biblical term. That is not what the scripture says. Imagine get drunk in the spirit. When the Bible consistently encourages the opposite. The Bible encourages us to be what? To be sober. First Thessalonians chapter 5 Verse 5 through 8. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be what? Sober. For, for those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. And it's talking about the darkness. It's not talking about, oh, it's midnight and it's dark outside. I can't see when I drop my phone. It's talking about darkness pervading the earth. You know what I'm saying? Is it Isaiah 60, 61? Gross darkness, you know what I'm saying, has enveloped the people. In the last days, darkness will cover the earth. It's, 
It's talking about the, the influence and the effect of spiritual wickedness in high places. It says, but let us who are of the day, in contrast to wickedness, in contrast to the kingdom of dark, we're the kingdom of what? Light. So let us, in contrast, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Verses that I've, I've noted, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, just in the New Testament that talk about being sober, plus the one I just read is 10, and it's mentioned twice. So that's at least 11 times the Bible makes reference to being sober. First Timothy, First Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, talking about leaders that must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober. I don't want no... Individuals who are not sober lead in the church, right? The word is bishop, overseer, or elder in 1 Timothy 3, 2. 1 Timothy 3, verse 11. Even so, their wives must be grave, not slanderers. Their wives need to be sober. Faithful in all things. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. Titus 2, verse 4. Titus 2, 6. 1 Peter 3, 1, verse 13. 1 Peter 1 verse 13. 1 Peter 4 verse 7. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be sober. Particularly, more so now. And it's more so now we'll be encouraged not to be sober, but to be the opposite. It says, be sober and watch prayerfully. 1 Peter 5 verse 8. Why? Be sober, vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, is a, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. We need to be sober. And what then is the result of being filled with the Spirit? Ephesians 5, verse 19. This is the result of being filled with the Spirit. Speaking to one another... And this is beautiful because it goes back to the point made earlier. Speaking to one another, how? In psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. But that's crazy because you ain't, I'm not singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to you. Who am I singing them to? Singing them to the Lord. Huh. But although I'm speaking and singing to the Lord directly, you can be benefited and blessed indirectly speaking to one another in psalms hymns and spiritual songs singing and making melody in your heart who to to the lord you know when you're just walking around and you're about to get in a car and all of a sudden there's this song that you're just singing and that's why i try not to listen to secular music too tough at work it's hard because we work with kids and you know what i'm saying we even use that to some degree I'm saying the instrumentals and it's like sometimes you're there and a song will get in your head. I was just about to sing one, but I'm not going to sing it because it will get into your head and it will start going around in your mind. And so many of, of these ungodly songs, so many of these secular songs are so ungodly, like you're there trying to kind of get it out of your mind, right? It's funny because Jesus in the gospel talks about um, hell and one of the reasons why it's so terrible not just because there's fire 
I'm saying Jesus talks about um, individuals who suffer pain to the point where they gnash their teeth, right? That's why you gnash your teeth. Like, remember with Rambo, he, dig, he wants to dig a bullet out of his arm, so he puts a bit of wood in his, in his mouth and he, he bites on it hard as he's getting the bullet out. Why? Because it's painful. You gnash your teeth in pain. But then he doesn't just talk about gnashing of teeth. What else does he talk about? Weeping. You don't weep because you're in pain. Weeping comes out of an emotional torment. Like I heard Pastor Rob Dingman talk about someone playing around the edge of a precipice. And if you're like, it's all right, I can, you know, I'm all right, I'm, I've got, everything's under control. And then that whole section just begins to slide away underneath you. And then there's a tree that you knew was there. And you thought, if anything happens, I'll just reach out for that tree. And it slides, and then you, you go to reach out for the tree, and you, you glance the branch. You don't actually get a hold of it. You glance it, so you feel it as your fingers go past it as you begin to drop. And as you fall, what goes through your mind is, I was so close to being able to save myself. Yet I missed it. And now... I can't make my way back up. I'm falling to my doom and destruction. Now imagine if there is no bottom. Like the abyss, in Greek the abuso, the bottomless pit. Imagine you're falling and there is no bottom, but you know you can't get back to where you were. Well, you know what? You are now in a state of torment. You are now in that place where you begin to weep. No tears running, but moaning and groaning because you knew you were that close to being saved. Yet so close, but yet now so far. I wonder which one is going to be worse in hell, the physical quote-unquote, torment, or the mental torment? How does Judas feel now? It's heavy, and we're going to come back to that momentarily. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. See, Jesus said hell is the place where the worm dies not. I always used to wonder what that meant. Where the worm dies not. Rob Dingman again. Bless me. This is all coming out. One of his sermons all coming out. <laughs> <clears throat> He said, the, worm, the, word for word, worm, the word for worm in German is a hit record. That's crazy. I don't know. I don't know what the word is. This is what he said. The word in German for worm is hit record. And it's like, you know, you hear a hit record. Don't stop moving. I never tried to remember them words or the melody. You know what I'm saying? That's one of them. It's not so bad. That's not a bad one that's going to hurt you spiritually as you think about that one, yeah? But I never tried to remember that. Why? It's a hit record and you hear it everywhere you go, right? 
and it goes around and around and around in your mind and you can't get it out no matter what you do. That is a picture of the worm dying not. For the individual who goes to hell and they have that worm, that constant... You know, if, you, if, if a worm climbs into your ear and it begins to crawl into your brain, can you imagine the torment of that? But you can't get it out. I mean, unless you smash your skull, you know what I'm saying, in order to... But that thing is in your mind and it's going around and you can't get it out. See, what we need to do is, we need to begin to get good stuff. Sit your mind on things that are pure, things that are above, things that are godly, things that are... And as you begin to think about those things, let those things go around in your mind. Because those things will edify you, benefit you and bless you. Now, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. When we sing or even speak to the Lord, others listen. And they're built up and they're edified. That's Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 14. You know, it's one thing saying something in a language that no one don't understand. Whoopee. You know what I mean? But what we need to do is we need to say things that people understand in order that, oh, for real, the Lord is good, you know. Look what he done in Egypt. When he dealt with Pharaoh, boy, they had to wait 400 years, but huh, the Lord came through in the end. Now you can get encouragement from that. You know what I'm saying? But that's a song. Have you ever been to a prayer meeting and not uttered a word in the prayer meeting, but just sat and listened to the prayers of others and you have just been edified? Not, but wait a minute. No one ain't talking to you. Be like, Robert, you're a madman. They weren't talking to you. <laughs> but I got so blessed and benefited. Yeah, they were talking to the Lord. They were speaking to God, yet you were privy to their conversation with God and thus were benefited. You know, James gave me a CD last week. Just blessed me. Not even, no hype. Just said, hey, Rob, I've got this for you. Just gave it to me. Before I looked around, it gone. Gave me the CD. And on it were songs being sung to the Lord. But you know what? As I listened to it, I was instructed as I listened to those songs. We speak indirectly to one another when we speak directly to God. That's why in our prayer meetings, we try and speak one at a time. Not all together. I mean, God can understand. He can tell it. Well, everybody's saying at the same time, but we're not benefited. It's not for our benefit primarily, but we can be benefited, so we do it one at a time. Not all together, because that's out of order. Let things be done in the church decently, and how? In order, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And it's not only in prayer that we need order. In that verse, we see the same in regards to prophecy and speaking in tongues. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 39. Therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy, and do not forbid to speak with tongues. That's one of the verses that encourages me to believe that they haven't ceased. Do not forbid to speak with tongues, but look, verse 40. Let all things, both of those things, whether it's prophecy or it's speaking in tongues, let all things be done decently and in order. Come on now. Now, before we get back to Acts chapter 2, consider carefully what happens next. 
The attention of the people is now assured. How many of you know the people are like, they're already done perplexed, like, I can't believe it. I heard this brother who comes from Galilee look me right in the eye, talking my own language, not to me, but to God. And I heard what he said. They have witnessed unusual, supernatural, inexplicable, that's unexplainable, phenomena. A genuine, undisputed miracle has taken place. You don't need to call it the doctors or anyone to validate this. This, this is, boom, this is a valid miracle. Yet, we don't see the continuation, watch this, of a sideshow or a turning up of the miracles. See, I nearly done what I did last week again. Lord, forgive me. You don't see now a fanfare with regard to these miracles. No. We don't see the attention continue to be given to the paranormal, but to the normal. What we now see is that which becomes the focus, which is the clear, definitive declaration of the word of God through preaching. Not a healing crusade or a stage-managed performance. In the midst of this miracle, they are already speaking about Christ and focusing, on, focusing in on him. Now we will see words, watch this, not directed to God now, but words directed to men. Back to Acts chapter 2, in response to the mockers, verse 14. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, huh, raised his voice and said, Look, Bridget, get on the piano. And get all, the, get all the ushers to come up on stage to start catching people. They didn't do that. Now, it's not wrong to get on the organ at the right time. I would say it's wrong to get people up to catch people. But look, he stands up and he raises his voice and said to them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. It's like nine o'clock in the morning, 6 a.m. being the first hour of the day. It was too early for them to be affected with strong drink. This was also the hour of morning worship, and devout Jews were not accustomed to take food or drink till after that time. And as their drink was had during their meal times, they couldn't possibly be drunk. Verse 16, but this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel approximately 800 years prior. And it shall come to pass in the last day, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out of my spirit in those days. And they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven. Hmm. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness hmm, 
and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. Now what Peter is doing is identifying and interpreting what has happened. On this special holy day, Pentecost morning, quoting from the prediction of Joel, an Old Testament prophet. But this prophet is, sorry, this prophecy is extensive and and it covers not only the event that they were beholding, but continues to predict the future beyond the time of the apostles and the first century church, I would suggest. He definitely, definitively identifies the outpouring of the Spirit, which is what they were seeing, promised by Jesus, a gift from the Father. But this prophecy is, is only fulfilled partially, yet irrefutably. We will, as we progress through this book, see many of these actual things fulfilled later. Your sons and your daughters prophesying, we will see. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my maid ser- men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. We will see this as we go through the book of Acts. And then, I would suggest, throughout church history, I would argue, even right up to today, rightly practiced. And, you know, come on, let's just be real. Why are we trying to call something something when it ain't? Why are we trying to hype it? You know, at my old church, things were so hyped. And I'm not pointing the finger, and I'm, I'm not just doing it for the sake of it. But things were so hyped, I couldn't even bring my friends to church. Because I wasn't sure what was going to pop off this Sunday. I mean, you know, why are we hyping it? I'm saying that we believe in the gifts of the Spirit. That's why we pray, right? I mean, the doctrine of laying on of hands is in the fundamental doctrine of um, fundamentals of the doctrine of Christ in Hebrews chapter 6. Repentance from dead works, faith toward God, we believe in that. The doctrine of baptisms, plural, laying on of hands, resurrection from the dead and eternal judgment. These are the six fundamental foundations of the doctrine of Christ. How can we say we don't believe in these things? But, see, we believe in it. That's why we pray for people who are sick. We'll even take oil and anoint them, according to James chapter 5. But at the end of the day, if they don't get healed, come on now, they don't get healed. And it's not a part of God's plan. Sometimes he will heal, sometimes he won't. And that's nothing new. You see these three Hebrew boys taken, sorry. You see these three Hebrew boys taken and thrown in the fire. And they'd be like, boy, God can deliver us. But you know what? If he don't, we still ain't going to bow. And guess what? He delivered them. But then you've got a John the Baptist. Hey. John the Baptist is in prison. And you talk about, Jesus, we need you. He was there, literally, alive. We're talking about spiritually. He was there, literally. And you know what? John never got his prayer answered. He got his head lobbed off. James died by the sword. But then you see Peter in prison... And boom, the angel comes and delivers him. 
I'm saying sometimes it works and sometimes it don't work. And it's up to God. It's as the Spirit wills that the gifts of the Spirit function, not as I will. Oh, well, see, and when it don't happen, you start blaming people. Well, you know what, my brother? You're sick. You know what I'm saying? You've got some terminal illness, and the reason you ain't getting healed is because you ain't got faith. You know, that's wickedness. I'm sorry. That's not right. See, and so I would argue that these things that are listed will continue throughout church history right up to today, but as the Lord wills, not as we will. But then also beyond our time, this particular prophecy speaks directly to, because we are yet to see wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath. We may have begun to see the beginning of these things in our time, and may even see them concluded, but then these phenomena are, dis are descriptive of an end-time catastrophe. Blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. These are described clearly in the book of Revelation, defining the end of the world as we know it. Notice, all these things culminate in judgment and the outpouring of God's wrath. Right? In verse 20. When? Before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And then ultimately the return of Christ at his second coming. Now, isn't it interesting as we close. Isn't it interesting that God starts off by pouring out his spirit. Then in the end he ends up pouring out his wrath. God starts out by offering salvation, we're going to hear in a minute, but concludes in bringing judgment. God starts off by offering love, joy, and forgiveness, but then devastation and destruction. And, Pete, and here Peter articulates just that. Before judgment is the extended hand of mercy. The kingdom of God is at hand. The extended hand of mercy to conclude Joel's prophecy and our time today. Look at verse 21. And it shall come to pass that in the midst of all of this, in the light of all of this, that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whoever appreciates that the end will come. Don't worry, about the, don't worry about the end of the world. Worry about the end of your life. That's something that you can put money in. That's in the bank. The end of your life will come. Just as God says it will. And then the judgment. It is appointed unto man once to die then the judgment. Whoever appreciates that will call upon his name. And if you call upon the name of the Lord, you will be delivered. You'll be saved. You will be rescued. You don't have to be that individual in hell saying, oh my goodness, why didn't I? And that going around in your mind and around in your mind for the rest of eternity. 
God wants to save us from the judgment. If only we would call on him. Judgment in this world and then also the far greater judgment of the soul. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us your word. It's the roadmap to true spirituality. I pray, Father, that you would help us anoint our eyes with eye salve in order that we might be able to look and see the signposts in your word that point in a particular direction. Signs that say, stop, no entry. So that we don't end up going up a a one-way street in a wrong direction. Lord, help us. In places, your word is very complex, Lord. And it's hard for us to completely understand. It's true to some degree we look through a, a veil, a glass, dimly, trying to make out really what's going on. And Lord, I just, I just ask that you'd help us, that you'd open the eyes of our understanding in order that we might truly be able to appreciate what is going on in your word. In order that we might, in the light of your word, understand our experiences rather than the other way around. Trying to say, well, because I felt this or because I saw that, this must mean that. Help, Lord, help us as your children. And as we've sat at your feet today, Lord, looking at different aspects of your word, Lord, I pray that you would make sense of it for us. One of the promises, Father, that Jesus gave us with regard to the spirit coming was that he would lead us in all truth and that he would teach us. So, Father, help us to be teach. Help me to be teachable, Lord. There are many things I don't understand, Lord. Help us, Lord, and give us clarity, I pray. For Jesus' sake, amen. Amen. Would you stand with me? And so now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you. I'm no diamond ring.